So we went out to dinner with an old friend last night at a fantastic restaurant, Tosca, in Washington. Which is, by the way, a total, mm. like— bipartisan, interestingly, power restaurant. And a place I never go. Yeah, okay. no, I, I haven't <laughs> been there for dinner in so long. <laughs> but there we were because our friend wanted to go there. And there, and it, like the next table over practically, is Mayorkas, the mm. cabinet secretary who's the target of an impeachment hearing. Did he look worried? No. no. He looked really happy. He was sort of accepting hellos from everyone around the restaurant. And, um, you know, so this is life in Washington. It, it seems to me these impeachments are not exactly rattling people. Well, of course, there is also the element of, you know, let's go out to a very, uh, you know, CNBC place and go table to table and say hello to people. He is a, he is a very jovial man by, uh, you know, inclination. I, we did notice that there was the former Trump White House counsel sitting a few tables Pat Cipollone. over. Yeah. yeah. Oh I mean, God. you know, Washington this is sounds, a village. I have to say, this Evan, sounds awfully swampy, doesn't it? I mean, this really is. <laughs> Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined, as ever, by my colleagues Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser. And good morning to you both. Hey, Evan. Hey there. The last few weeks have been a busy time in what we might call Washington's impeachment industrial complex. Last week, in their second swing at the plate, House Republicans impeached Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over the Biden administration's handling of the U.S.-Mexico border, impeaching a cabinet officer for the first time, I should point out, in a century and a half. Meanwhile, the House's other impeachment investigation against President Joe Biden is on the verge of collapse this week because their star witness has been arrested and charged with fabricating the allegation at the heart of the case, a $5 million bribe to the Biden family that never happened. And it seems that former star witness may also have ties to Russian intelligence. Together, these cases give us a pretty remarkable sense of a change in our politics, which is the defining down of impeachment. What was once a pretty rare and solemn instrument of accountability now looks more and more like just another partisan tool. So this week, we wanted to take a look at impeachment in our politics, how it's used, and what it means for our ability to hold leaders accountable. So let's start with this week's impeachment news. Jane, the indictment of the GOP's star witness. The man's name is Alexander Smirnoff, not a name known to many Americans until right now. Give us a sense of how he became the center of this GOP process, this now imperiled investigation against the Biden family. Well, okay, Alexander Smirnoff, he is, we have to say, still a bit of a man of mystery. There's mm. much that's not known about him. What we, we have not even seen his face because he covered it wow. up when he was being arrested. We did see he was wearing orange shoes and a maroon sweater, which maybe is enough for an arrest right there. I was going to say, that's know. a conspiracy. But, but at any yeah. rate, he, was, uh, he is someone who has dual citizenship in Israel and in the United States. He lives in Las Vegas, and he has been evidently for the last 10 years a secret source of raw intelligence to the FBI. 
And um, it appears that the intelligence that he has provided, starting especially since 2020, has been fabricated and may have been connected. His sources were close to Russian intelligence. And what has he been saying? He's been saying that the Biden family is taking illicit gigantic multi-million dollar bribes from Ukrainians in order to sort of protect Burisma, that company we've heard so much about. And he's claimed that that money's gone to both Hunter Biden and to President Biden. And apparently it's all made up. Mm. Susan, how important has that storyline, that narrative, which now has turned out to be nonsense, how important has that been to the Republican investigation of the Biden family. I mean, it literally is the Republican investigation of the Biden family. It is at the core of this impeachment inquiry. Republicans took back the House in 2022. They were determined as payback, revenge for Donald Trump, as a political tool against Joe Biden to impeach him is a classic Example where they knew the punishment, but they needed to find a crime. Well, this Alexander Smirnov's unproven, unvetted, as it now turns out, allegation made to the FBI in 2020 was the thing that they found. In all the combing through everything else, uh, it was only this specific alleged $5 million bribe that they found of actual possible criminality. I mean, it raises so many questions, right? I mean, first of all, about the FBI's professionalism. I mean, how could they rely on someone who is so completely And they only investigated this, Jane. So in, in the summer of 2020, he made this allegation in, you know, they checked it out in a cursory manner. The Trump-appointed U.S. attorney uh, who was supervising the agents, he determined that there was somehow enough indication of uh, substance to this charge that it was passed on to David Weiss, the special counsel investigating Hunter Biden. So that's how it lives through the bureaucracy. Republicans on Capitol Hill, they get an inkling of it. They demand this unvetted form. Again, nobody checked this guy out. Nobody did anything until last September. So that's three years that this allegation is just sitting in the files like a malignant virus Hmm. ready to pop. And then meanwhile, you've got Jim Jordan, congressman from Ohio, who said last month that this Smirnoff uh, allegation, this Smirnoff lie, was, in his words, the most corroborating evidence we have. But the most corroborating evidence we have is that 1023 form from this highly credible confidential human source, according to U.S. Attorney Scott Brady. Jane, I'm curious how the relationship between what the politicians were saying and what the right-wing media has been saying, how those two pieces fit together, because the right-wing media has been a pretty important amplifier of this canard. That's an understatement. I mean, <laughs> how would you describe it? It's amazing how many times, if there have been a number of different counts of how often this this lie has been, you know, spread across the right-wing media sphere. But um, I think Sean Hannity alone, I did, Susan, you had it in your column. How many times was it? That well, shout out this? to Media Matters here. They did a definitive scrub of every time that Sean Hannity mentioned, you know, the, quote, Biden crime family last year. And it turned out that this particular lie alone, the $5 million alleged bribe, was mentioned 
85 times mm. last year in 2023 alone by Sean Hannity. Friday, newsbreaking edition of Hannity. Now the Joe Biden bribery money laundering allegations. Allegations scandal. of bribery from a trusted FBI confidential Let's human source. Let's go back source. to 2015. Burisma executives. Uh, Foreman that met with the CEO of, of Burisma and chronicled that conversation and gave that information to the FBI. What's really incredible is that that's 85 times overall. He made more than 300 segments discussing the Biden the crime so family. That's an average of more than one per show, more than one per show. I mean, you've also seen, I mean, Jim Jordan was asked directly, well, yeah. what do you say now? This was your the single most important source and corroborator of your allegations. And it turns out he's a liar. And he said it doesn't change any of the facts. Those facts, they don't change what, regardless of what this, said, uh, this confidential human source has said. Which is actually, when you step back, kind of true, mm. because the fact was there was nothing there in the beginning <laughs> and there's nothing there now. So now it's just that we can all see it. But I actually wanted to say, I think it's really good that you're asking about how the media sphere sort of amplifies this. But there's a piece in this that I think is also very important, which is how the Senate and the House got into this because they forced the FBI to disclose this raw intelligence, which is in itself an incredibly irresponsible thing to do. We all know that raw intelligence is uncorroborated, unverified. It's just basically hearsay. Mm. And so those, the Senator Grassley, who really pushed to put this out in public without any verification. And then if senators could be held responsible for libel, which the way reporters can, he would be charged with libel for what he did, but they can't be. Mm. So they they he took no, it was just incredibly irresponsible what he did. Yeah, I think Jane is making actually a really important point here because it goes to what the Republicans on Capitol Hill are doing to this tool of impeachment, how they're using the power and the platform that they have in Congress. And it is uh, the height of irresponsible in the sense that the underlying uh, facts of the accusation don't matter because it's all about having an accusation to wield. Everyone knows the political math that we're dealing with. And even if they were to go ahead with a, a, a vote of the full House to impeach Joe Biden, no one expects that he would be convicted in a Senate trial. There aren't the votes for that. So it's essentially the same cycle of lies and irresponsibility. I had this classic conversation with uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, who's been the lead Democrat on the committee kind of trying to fight against uh, this impeachment investigation for the last year. And I said to him yesterday, well, okay, Congressman, now that this allegation has collapsed, now that we have the Smirnoff affair, I'm trying to brand that, the Smirnoff (laughs) affair, uh, you know, will they finally give up this conspiracy theory? (laughs) And he said, well, look, we know how this works. Uh, In the mind of the most extreme conspiracy theorists, the collapse of it and the arrest of the informant actually becomes further proof of the conspiracy and that they're trying to silence him. And he summoned this this image that is really stuck in my head. He said, you know, Susan, there will be some people like Confederate soldiers wandering around in the woods in 1866 still (laughs) fighting the war. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a great term in the study of conspiracy. 
conspiracy theories, which is that they say that they are self-sealing, that when there is a puncture, that they actually have a way of um, conjuring some solution to the problem. Oh, Evan, that's so good. That's incredible. That is really good. I mean, mean, to me, what, what we're sort of looking at, if you sort of stand back, is... You know, the we've gone in 250 years in this country from John Locke, who was trying to create a just society, and and the founders of the Constitution are trying to have all these checks and balances to make sure that we have fair processes, and and we've gone from that to Lewis Carroll, no. where where, <laughs> where you've got um, we've gone through the looking glass, and we are now at sentence first, verdict later, impeachment first. Then find the evidence. It's worth reminding people that, by the way, the first uh, suggestion, the first member of Congress to actually file for an impeachment against Joe Biden was Marjorie Taylor Greene on January 21st, the day after he was inaugurated. Just giving you a feel for how uh, empty this process has become. Very briefly, Susan, before we go, we're going to take a break. But do you think this is the end of the impeachment process against Biden? Uh, well, I do not because the uh, FBI informant was arrested, but because they don't seem to have the votes. And I think it would be very hard to put the votes together. Right now, Republicans have the, the narrowest House majority anyone can remember. They can only lose two votes until a special election later this spring. And uh, I don't think they're going to do it. But uh, what do you think, Evan? Is, is the White House worried about this? Well, I will tell you, it's just not something that they are worried about because I think they recognize that this process was, um, in a sense, rotten from within. So they'll that they have so other amazing, issues to think though, about. Right? Like, I know. You right? know, here we are in Washington, and if you told me ten years ago, well, they're going to be <laughs> investigating the president in an impeachment inquiry, and we're all kind of. Shrug our shoulders. All right, we're going to take a break, and then we'll talk about the House's relatively more successful impeachment of Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. If you've been enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review on the podcast platform of your choice. And while you're there, don't forget to hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. Thank you very much for listening. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts. So on February 13th, Secretary Mayorkas became the first cabinet officer to be impeached in almost 150 years. The impeachment passed by one vote with three Republicans joining Democrats in opposition. Susan, what was Alejandro Mayorkas charged with? Well, essentially he was charged with doing his job. 
uh, in a way that Republicans don't like. And that's the reason, basically, why no one has attempted this since 1876. So Mayorkas uh, has become kind of the the, the poster child, the, the face of the border wars, mm. if you will. And there's a variety of uh, ways in which Republicans are accusing him of not enforcing uh, immigration laws that are on the books to shut down the flow of immigrants on the border. But Jane, have we ever seen a case like this where you've got somebody uh, essentially being impeached, not for their individual contact, not for what we think of as high crimes and misdemeanors, but in fact for what seems to be a pretty routine, even if intense, policy dispute? No, I mean, this really is is a good example of how impeachment is being defined down in the in Washington. Impeachment and censure, expulsion also. These are the death penalties for, for people serving in, in office in Washington. And and they're being used and sort of thrown around like they're, you know, just nothing. Um that or, or very minor. So yeah, I think we're this is a you know, we're we're crossing a crossing a Rubicon here. Do, but is there any, in a sense, accountability for the people who are pretending to hold them accountable? Meaning, do you think the public Cares. Well, there Does has it... been in the past. I mean, I okay. If we go back and take a look, I mean, I think you really the, the place where this this began, I, at least in the modern period, to be defined down was was maybe um, Bill Clinton's mm. impeachment and uh, you know Gingrich era Republicans, where they really started playing kind of fast and loose and dirty. And so you had you know Newt Gingrich kind of leading the way, and you had. Uh, Tom DeLay and several of the others who were sort of leading this impeachment effort against Clinton. And when the dust settled, it hurt the Republicans, partly because they were so hypocritical. It turned out they were accusing Bill Clinton of having an extramarital affair, and a good number of them were having extramarital affairs also. So it was, a you know, an embarrassment, and it boomeranged for them. Gingrich thought it was going to gained them House seats, and it did exactly the opposite. It lost them the House, um, and it also really hurt Gingrich. Mm. So I think there's a sense that if the public doesn't see it as fair, it can boomerang. Now, in this case, I think there probably are some, there's probably some political damage, not so much for the Republicans, more for, for Biden, because what the Mayorkas impeachment does is it shines a light on the immigration and the border issue, and it's a kind of a no-win issue for Biden right now. So, I mean, to the extent that it brings attention to that, I don't think it's particularly good for Biden. I think, you know, Jane, it's worth remembering, too, that at the very moment that Republicans are trying to draw attention to border issues, they did just uh, give Biden a pretty big political gift recently. They because certainly did. It's worth they, remembering they shot after themselves all they... in the foot, too. You want to explain, but, you know, this is true. They, they were setting this up to be a total win for themselves, and they they screwed it up. Yeah. In the middle of January, you had Republicans saying one after another, we simply cannot go another day as a country without having serious policy change on the border. I remember Mike Johnson getting on CNN and saying that on January 17th. The reason is not for politics. This is beyond Republican versus Democrat. This is about a serious catastrophe that almost nine out of 10 Americans understand is that an emergency level is something that must be addressed. That's what the polling says. And then... What happened, of course, Donald Trump comes in and says, absolutely not. This is going to deprive me of my central campaign issue. And uh, lo and behold, then you have people saying exactly the honest thing out loud. There was a congressman from Texas who came out and said, I'm not going to help Joe Biden. So, Susan, then the question becomes, if what we're seeing is, in a sense, a kind of 
cynicism Olympics where you've got these Republicans trying to outperform one another for an impeachment process that has proved to be thin on the Mayorkas front and non-existent really on the Biden front. Do you think that voters, as Jane described, will hold this to the feet of Republicans, or did they just go along with the sense that this is a uh, a pox on everyone's house? Well, look, that I think is the political calculation here, Evan. It's uh, do how much are people paying attention to the internal maneuvers in Congress, or even the hypocrisy of Republicans who say they want a deal and then reject the deal when they don't get it? You know, I, I take the point that it, it's it's really bad timing for Republicans to be impeaching Mayorkas uh, for not doing enough on the border the same basically two-week period that they refused to do anything more on the border. At the same time, I also find it hard to imagine in our in our election this year that people are really going to be like people who are motivated to vote because they're worried about a crisis at the southern border that they're really going to be like, oh, well, actually, I don't want Donald Trump anymore. Uh, on his signature issue, and I'm going to go for Joe Biden. I, what about I, I don't find what about that Jane's point that, that it really did blow back on Republicans in the 90s. Do you find a, a parallel there? Right. Well, I think there it, it blew back, by the way, on Democrats as well in Trump's first impeachment. In fact, when Donald Trump finished his uh, impeachment trial in the 2019, early 2020 charges against him stemming from Ukraine uh, and his effort to uh, demand that uh, Zelensky investigate Joe Biden, actually Trump's approval rating rose at the end of the Senate trial to the highest level of the presidency. He never cracked 50 percent in the Gallup poll. He's the only president in American history, by the way, since polling began never to have been supported by a majority of uh, the country. But he was up to his highest level that he ever recorded in his presidency at the end of that impeachment trial. So, you know, there's an argument that Americans, the message that they tend to send around these is they want Congress to work on Congress's business, which is legislation, passing bills. And this Congress has a terrible record of getting its actual work done. But Americans are not that big, I think, on impeachment in general, on what they perceive to be Washington's political wars. And I do think that's the cynical game that you talked about, Evan. Republicans in using impeachment right now, they are essentially contributing to driving down Americans' faith in politicians, in the institutions in Washington, in uh, the consistency of our uh, politicians. I think that's part of what this game is all about, is to say, okay, you accuse Donald Trump. Well, we accuse Joe Biden. We accuse Alejandro Mayorkas. All these politicians are dirty. It is. It's true. I mean, it's an effort to try to create sort of whataboutism and, and parity between the two to two parties on, on behalf of the the Trump camp wants to make it looks like oh you you say our guy's corrupt your guy's corrupt I mean mm-hmm. it's very very schoolyardish I don't think though you can get away from the fact that that if you look at what's happened in the last ten days it's a gigantic embarrassment for the Republicans mm-hmm. I mean the Mayorkas impeachment is a blip there's been a lot of time effort media attention on the Republican side to making this claim against Joe Biden and his son. And the whole thing just burst in their face. I mean, that's the bottom line. (laughs) All right. We're going to take one more break. When we come back, we're going to look at what brought us really to this point in the defining down of impeachment and what it means for our ability to hold leaders accountable going forward. 
I remember this moment, Jane, when Mitch McConnell got up at the end of the second impeachment of Donald Trump, and it was this decisive moment when he could have run his lance through his sometime nemesis, sometime partner, Donald Trump. And instead of saying, yeah, I'm going to vote for impeachment, what he said was, we have a criminal justice system designed for this purpose. President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen, unless the statute of limitations is run, still liable for everything he did while he's in office. Meaning, let's leave it to the prosecutors to go after Donald Trump for his role in the insurrection of January 6th. And Mitch McConnell, after all, is the guy who considers himself an institutionalist. You know, that's the classic language that he uses about his his view of political systems. What happened? Why was it? Was it something about Trump that made them incapable of using impeachment in the way that they should have? Or was it something about the party? I mean, basically what happened was Mitch McConnell lost his nerve. He passed the buck. He could have tried to lead an impeachment conviction in the Senate. But when he realized that within his caucus, he didn't have the votes, he did not want to be exposed as failing because he's always afraid of losing the support of his caucus and losing his position as the leader of his caucus. So he basically, he panicked and backed off because he couldn't bring them along. He knew, you could tell from his speeches, he absolutely knew that Trump should have been convicted of impeachment. I mean, he's said out loud, he is guilty, and he is the person who brought about the January 6th insurrection. So he knew that that he should have been convicted, but he couldn't bring his caucus along, and that's where Trump comes in. You said, is it about Trump? Yes, because Trump had so much control over the members of the Republican caucus, even in the Senate. You know what's striking, Susan, is that, in fact, we over the last couple of years, we've seen the emergence of a new and powerful tool of accountability, which was the January 6th committee, which used this very sophisticated form of really sort of a form of prosecution. They were much better about framing this for viewers. It was much more concise. It was punchier than uh, a lot of typical committee hearings. And it had a way of breaking through to the public. Let's we'll acknowledge not everybody. But do you see a way in which the impeachment process, which is becoming now debased, is going to create room? You talked about Jamie Raskin before. Is there a generation of lawmakers who see a way of still figuring out how to reach people when it matters? Yeah. I mean, I have a different different view of that, which is to say that the January 6th committee was useful for uh, uh, putting on the record uh, a certain amount of testimony, for pushing it forward, for pressuring, in effect, the Justice Department to get its act together and move. But in many ways, the January 6th committee represents the failure, uh, in my view, of accountability. It represents the failure, first of all, of impeachment, as we, Jane, so correctly put it. Uh, you know, the problem was political math. Uh, McConnell and even with the number of Republicans he could bring with him, plus the Democrats, they didn't quite have enough to get over that very high threshold that the Constitution sets for conviction in the Senate. And more importantly, Even the traditional methods that Congress has short of impeachment for investigating wrongdoing by an executive branch in the past, that has been done in a bipartisan, 
bicameral way. And so you went from, say, the Iran-Contra committee in the 1980s, which was both the House and the Senate, it was Democrats and Republicans, even in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, the shock was still very palpable. There was still a sense that Donald Trump had disgraced himself, that he couldn't come back. They failed even to set up a bipartisan committee. They refused to do that, both McConnell and then in the House, the Republican leader at the time, Kevin McCarthy. This was a terrible precedent that they set. These people had been the victims of an aggressive, violent mob that stormed the United States Capitol, uh, the first uh, uh, armed hostile uh, force to take over the U.S. Capitol since the British invaded in 1814. And yet Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell wouldn't even uh, agree to a bipartisan commission that would have established uh, what exactly happened there. So I think it was important and very good that Nancy Pelosi went ahead and set up the January 6th committee. I just, if, if our subject today is accountability, mm. I, I find that that is one of the kind of lessons unlearned and I hope that will be learned for we need tools of accountability. Impeachment has broken down in recent years because the two impeachments of Trump proved, if nothing else, that it's a practical impossibility to obtain a conviction in our deeply polarized and almost evenly divided society. Since the Constitution requires you to have such a large majority in the Senate to vote for conviction, as a practical matter, that means nobody's ever going to get convicted. I mean, it shouldn't mean that because, as you say, in the past, there have been times when lawmakers have put the public interest ahead of their partisan interests. But, but, and that is. Well, but of nobody's course, ever been convicted. No president has ever been convicted. No, but they have managed to, in all kinds of investigations, work together less and less in recent years, though. I mean, I think you could say that, that Mitch McConnell, he failed to put the public interest ahead of his own personal interest, which was to stay majority leader. Mm. And because of that, he, he enabled. Trump to go on to to run for another time. I mean, part of what people forget about impeachment is not only if, if someone is convicted, it's not only that they're convicted of those specific acts, but it bars them yeah. from running again. Can and you imagine and, if we didn't have to go through with this? Right, that's so that, important, Jane. It, you know, <laughs> I mean, and, and so... So what I hear you saying is that in the end, you know, the system, the process itself is only as strong as the individuals who are yes, holding the Yes, exactly levers. right. And what we're looking at are very weak hmm. and somewhat craven leaders. Well, on that note. <laughs> A silence that uh, <laughs> fills multitudes. Well, it is worth reminding folks where we started this conversation, which is that the central plank of the Republican investigation, the impeachment investigation of Joe Biden has collapsed. And we will see whether that means that the process itself is falling apart or whether it will continue on like a zombie inquiry for a while. Self-sealing. Self-sealing. The Confederate soldiers are riding in the woods right now, (laughs) shooting away. The lost cause of the Smirnoff affair has already begun. (laughs) Thank you. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Stephanie Karayuki. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Condé Nast's head of global audio is Chris Bannon. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. We'll be back next week, and thank you very much for listening.
P-R-X.